The children are dismissed for Children's Church. And the rest of you, please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 1. Book of Zechariah. And again, if, if you're not familiar where that is, if you start in the book of Matthew and go back two books, you will be at Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 1. <coughs> the notes for this morning's message can be found in the bulletin. And as soon as everyone's there, let's... We can start by reading this passage. The first of eight night visions the Lord sends Zechariah. The first of eight night visions we're going to look at this morning. Zechariah 1, verses 7 to 17. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, What are these, my lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry at the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. This is... The first night vision. You get a taste for why prophetic literature at times can be challenging. Prophetic literature, by as a genre, shares certain characteristics. And what is common to prophetic literature is visions. That's why the prophets are sometimes referred to as seers. Why at the beginning of this vision, he says, I looked up and behold, I saw. And whenever you're dealing with visions, you've got some elements of symbology. These visions are communicating truth, and that can be tricky and complicated. And so this morning, we're going to dive into and try to unpack what God has for his people in this first night vision. But let me remind you where we are and where we've come. We're going to look at this in, in two parts. The vision is sort of explained what's going on. And then as a result of this vision... Zechariah is given a proclamation. He's commissioned with a message. And you see that, cry out, cry out. And so we're going to look at the vision. We're going to look at the commission. And then we're going to make some points of application. So we're going to look at the vision, try to unpack the symbols and what's going on. We're going to look at what it was Zechariah was supposed to proclaim as a result of this. And then we'll try to make some points of application. But if you remember, Zechariah is one of six books written to the post-exilic people. Israel was taken captive by Babylon. And then after 70 years of captivity, they were returned to the land. But only a small, meager remnant. Only 50,000 Israelites, at least initially, returned to the land. Even though Cyrus had declared all of them free to go. More than just free, that he would pay for their return. And they were beginning the rebuilding project, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls, the city of Jerusalem that had been absolutely sacked and ravaged. And they're discouraged. Once a great nation, once a world power, 
They're now under pagan rule. In fact, it's interesting to note that all other prophets who date their writings, other than Zechariah and um, Haggai, date their writings by the year of the reign of Israeli kings. You can go through Isaiah, you can go through Jeremiah. The dates are always given based on Israeli kings. Here, in only these two books, post-exilic books, the dates are given by pagan kings. So we get in verse 7, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, who's Darius the Mede or the Persian. Stark reminder that Israel does not have its independence. They're back in the land, but they're still overseen by the real government, which is Persia, had been Babylon. And so they're back in the land, and that's good, but they're discouraged. And God sends Haggai to encourage them to rebuild. And in their discouragement, they'd fallen away from faithfulness to the Lord. They began to build the temple. They began to build and then quickly stopped and let the, the beginnings that had started just, just hang there for years. And so God sends Haggai and calls him to repentance. And he sends Zechariah and he calls him to repentance. And we saw that in the first six verses that God has all these blessings for his people. He has all these blessings. This is a book of encouragement. But if you check the date from 1-7 to 1-1, you see that the first message that came in verses 1 to 6 came a full two and a half or three months before the rest of the book. Because the first message, which was necessary to prepare the people for blessing, was a call to repentance. Because God will not bless an unrepentant people. He isn't going to comfort an unrepentant people. God blesses and comforts the repentant, the broken, the, the contrite. It's a broken spirit and a contrite heart that God will not despise, a heart of faith. And so that first message goes out in the first six verses, and the Lord just lets it hang there for months. But the people apparently respond and listen. And we, we piece that together by reading Ezra and Nehemiah, and a revival breaks out, and they do return. Look at 1-3, where the Lord cries out, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. Well, they do return to the Lord. And so the rest of this book is a book of comforting, encouraging words to Israel. And the, the chapter divisions of the book, if you remember, chapters 1 to 6, I suggested a sort of simple way of breaking down this book. Chapters 1 to 6, eight night visions. Chapters 7 and 8, one question, four answers, and then nine through 14 is two burdens of the Lord. And so we're now entering into the first section of that major section, chapters one to six, eight night visions. Now, many of you are familiar with Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, right? Just, just nod. And in that story, Dickens imagines a, a uh, Scrooge, and in one night getting visited by spirits, being shown things, and then at the end of the night, the, the, the story ends the next morning, and he wakes up, and he's had these three visions, and he's a changed man. Dickens may have ripped that idea off from here, because in, with, a lot of, with, a lot of, with a lot of, you know, changes and license, because what it, as best as we can understand this, in one night, Zechariah receives eight different visions from the Lord. Now, just look at this. In, in, in 1.8, I saw in the night, and behold... 118, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold. 2-1, I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold. Chapter 3, then he showed me. And then chapter 4 begins, he apparently fell asleep. So there's a break after chapter 3. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said, what do you see? And now we're back to seeing things. And it goes all the way through chapter 6. So as best as we can put this together, in one night, the Lord sends Zechariah eight prophetic visions that he wants him to deliver to the people. And in, in, in them, there's some similarity. There's usually some object, some item that's looked upon. In one case, it's a, it's, in our case this week, it's, it's horses, then horns and craftsmen. There's a surveying line. The cleansing of Joshua the high priest in chapter 3, a golden lampstand in chapter 4, a flying scroll, a woman in a basket. I mean, it gets, it gets, it gets interesting. And, uh, and we'll deal with that. We'll deal with that. And usually, there's a question from Zechariah that he asks. These are the patterns that show up in these visions. So he'll see something, and not, not, not surprisingly, he'll say, what is that? And frequently, there's an interpreting angel with him. And the angel of the Lord makes an appearance here. So 
as we sort of dive into the outline, we're setting the date back to uh, 5, 519, 520, depending on, I think it's really 519 B.C. <clears throat> We've just crossed into the new year into February of 519 B.C. And the setting is somewhere in Israel. We, we don't exactly know where he was. Probably close to the capital with only 50,000 people. They're probably not really spread out. And Zechariah in this night receives this vision as God's prophet. So that's the date and the setting. We've got a repentant remnant of Israel who've already received a word to repent twice and they've, they've responded in faith. And now the Lord of hosts, and remember that Lord of hosts, Lord of armies is the predominant title for God in this book and we'll start to see why here very shortly. That's the date and the setting of the vision which I've titled a covert reconnaissance report. That's what I think is going on here. A covert reconnaissance report. So let's take a look at this now, at the characters in the vision. We've got the date and the setting, the characters. And we just pick this up in verse 8. I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. So we've got a guy on a red horse who later is identified as the angel of the Lord. Um, it says there's a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen. And if you jump down to verse 11, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. So apparently, this man on a red horse is the angel of the Lord. So the man on the red horse, angel of the Lord. And I'm going to argue that this is Jesus Christ. That's the blank there. This is Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. If you've ever wondered what was Jesus doing, what activities was he involved in before the incarnation, before he took on flesh, um, just about all conservative Christian theologians agree by putting the data together that the angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. And we'll, we'll look at that and make that case here just in a little bit. For right now, that's, that's who I'm saying this character and this drama is. You've got, you got the rider on the red horse, the angel of the Lord. Red, by the way, can be muddy red. It's the same word for Esau. It can be reddish brown. Um, I went back and forth on whether there's supposed to be deep symbolism in all the colors of the horses. There may be tinges of it, but when Zechariah asks the meaning of it, and he's told the meaning, nothing is said of the colors. So rather than speculate, we'll just move on. Um, there, there may be tinges of, of red is for blood and judgment. That's possible, but, but when he asks the meaning of the prophecy, that isn't pointed to. What is pointed to, though, is the horses. You've got the man on the red horse, and then you've got the horsemen. And in this book in particular, horses are t connected with a military motif. If, if you turn over to um, chapter 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. Chapter 10, verse 5. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them. They shall put to shame the riders on horses. So the picture here, I think, is one of, of a military meeting. You've got some sort of commander, general, leader, the, the rider on the red horse, the angel of the Lord, and these other horsemen. And they're meeting at night in a glen with myrtle trees. The myrtle trees are more like big bushes. And, and I think the picture here is this is covert. Um, this is supposed to be unnoticed. This isn't in broad daylight. This is at night. There's, there's covering around them. And so you've got the man and the horse. Second, you've got the horsemen. And we're told when he asks who they are, what they are, they are an angelic patrol. An angelic patrol. We see that um, in verse 10. So the man who is standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And so we get an idea of what the point of the horses is. It's, it's speed and reach. Horses by themselves in sort of this military picture are sort of scouts, patrolmen going out, taking notice of what's going on. And if they were with chariots, like they are in chapter 6, then you get more of the battle motif. But still, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies in this first vision is marshalling his army. He's, he's, he's coordinating with his um, advanced scouts. And they're, they're going out patrolling the whole earth. 
And finally, there's the interpreting angel. We don't get a ton of more information from, from him, but what you get the idea is that as Zechariah has these visions, the Lord has given him sort of an angelic guide, and he sort of stands at his side, and periodically he'll ask Zechariah something, or Zechariah will ask him something. And, and as we track through this, Zechariah asks him the question here um, in verse 9, Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered. And so you got to track. So, so Zechariah says to the interpreting angel, what is this? The man standing next to him, the angel standing next to him says, I'll show you. And then the angel of the Lord starts speaking. And so you got to sort of pay attention who's talking and what's going on. But these are the players in this drama, this vision. You've got Zechariah himself, the man on the red horse, slash the angel of the Lord, Jesus Christ, the horsemen, the, the, the angelic patrol, and the interpreting angel. And the drama itself unfolds in, in three stages. First, and this is in verses 11 to 13, there's the report of the horsemen. So after they're identified, they sort of step up and they give their report. They're sent out to scout out the earth. What did they find? In verse 11, they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. So as they're scouting out all the nations, the report when they come back is the nations are at rest. They're at peace. And you might think that's a good report. You might think, phew, aren't we supposed to pray for world peace? This actually incenses the angel of the Lord, provokes him. Because after they give their report of this worldwide peace, we now move in, in the second point to the prayer of the angel of the Lord. Verse 12, then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Jerusalem against which you've been angry these 70 years? So just to track the flow, we had the, this, this vision starts with identifying the players, identifying the, the participants, and then first piece, first act, the, the riders give their report. That initiates a response by the angel of the Lord who cries out, um, and prayer to the Lord of hosts. O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? You see, even though we might think initially a report of worldwide peace is a good thing, the reason this provokes the angel of the Lord is because he is, he's concerned about his people. He's concerned about Israel and Jerusalem. And, and the contrast between the peace of, of, of these nations surrounding them with the dire circumstances of Israel um, being taunted and mocked by the Samaritans, um, living in, in, in ignominy, a remnant, and he's provoked. And he cries out to the Lord, how long will you going to bless everyone else at peace and not have mercy on your people? And then the third, the third act is the response of the Lord. Now, before we go there, I just want to make the point, because the, the angel of the Lord isn't actually introduced until here, in verse um, 11 and 12, um, that the angel of the Lord is, in fact, the pre-incarnate Christ. And so very quickly, and you can track through some of these references, I just want to make the case for that. The, the angel of the Lord, in short, only appears in the Old Testament. Once Christ is incarnate, once the incarnation occurs, the angel of the Lord ceases to show up in the Bible. And you've got to make the distinction between the angel of the Lord and an angel from the Lord. And as you start to track the angel of the Lord, you realize he begins to do things and say things that really only God can do. For instance, in uh, Genesis 21, 17 and 18, um, when, when Ishmael and Hagar are driven out and they're, they're um, dying of thirst, God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles her? Fear not for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Lift up the boy, hold him fast for I will make him a great nation. Is, well, is God doing this or is the angel going to do well, The angel says he's going to make him a great nation. Okay. Then in Genesis 31, um, Jacob recounting his wrestling with the angel of the Lord. The angel of God said to me in that dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled for I've sent all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. Now who's saying that in Genesis 31? The angel of the Lord is saying that he is the God at Bethel. That, 
okay? Um, moving on a little further to Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. So who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? The angel of the Lord, right? Okay, let's keep going. And it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush. A verse earlier, it said the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the bush. Now God's talking to him in the bush. Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place with which you are standing is holy ground. And I said, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. But I thought this was the angel of the Lord. Is it God or the angel of the Lord? The answer is yes. Even more clearly, um, I'll, I'll skip the first Judges example. You can look these up. Um, judges 13, 20 to 22. This is when Manoah and his wife are met by the angel of the Lord about the birth of Samson. And they want to feed him some food and he declines. But he says that you can offer him a sacrifice. And in verse 20, when the flame went up towards heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die for we have seen God. He knew it was the angel of the Lord, and he said, we've seen God. The angel of the Lord is God. And so unless the Trinity is a quadrinity, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. There's, there's no other way that you can take the claims that Scripture makes about the angel of the Lord and conclude anything else. So you can track down the rest of those references, and there's more than that. But that's why I take the angel of the Lord to be pre-incarnate. Jesus Christ. And he prays and makes a petition to the living God. And then in verse 13, the Lord responds. The response of the Lord of hosts. The response of the Lord of hosts. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. And really, that's, this sort of sets up all the night visions. Gracious and comforting words. God has comforting words for Israel. It's comforting and gracious words for his people. And remember, the name Zechariah that the book is named after means God remembers. And so this, this first vision is a vision of grace, a vision of comfort. And then that leads, there's the, there's the actual vision in the drama, what takes place. The riders make their report, which prompts the angel of the Lord to petition God, which prompts the living God to respond, which then gets to Zechariah's commission. Verse 14, so the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry at the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. The Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now, what Zechariah is to declare comes into three parts. And we can see the three parts by the formulaic introduction, thus says the Lord, or thus says the Lord of hosts. You see it in verse 14. The angel who was talking with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts. And then verse 16, therefore, thus says the Lord. And then verse 17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. Zechariah is given a three-part message. So in verses 14 and 15, we learn that the Lord is jealous for Jerusalem and angry at the nations. The Lord is jealous for Jerusalem and angry at the nations. Notice the, the, the emphasis. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and I am exceedingly angry at the nations. And what you get is God's anger at the nations, his his. Anger at Babylon, now Medo-Persia, 
is proportional to his love for his people. You know, one of the things we can wrestle with is understanding how can a God who says, I am love, be angry? How can a God who says he, he's loving, overflowing and abounding in, in steadfast love, how can such a God be angry and wrathful? And one of the things we, we learn in the Bible is that anger and wrath are not um, the opposite, are not completely separated from love. Here, it is precisely because God loves Jerusalem that he's angry. If someone were to attack my wife and children, my love for them would be the cause, would be the fuel of my anger at the crime, right? Because I love them, I am angry. And here, that's the exact point being made. Because he is exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem, he is extremely angry at the nations. In the same way, and we'll use the biblical metaphor of marriage, because a husband loves and is jealous for his wife, he's exceedingly angry at a man who would try to steal her away. That's the logic here. God's love for Israel, his love for Jerusalem, is the cause or the fuel for his anger at the nations. They are proportional He's jealous and he's angry at the nations. And just pause and make one other point. God's jealousy, and we can sometimes wrestle over that because we think of jealousy as, was it Shakespeare said it's a green, green-eyed monster? And we can think of that as an ugly thing, but jealousy is something, the jealousy of God is something which we should both delight in and be afraid of. I heard this once uh, 10 years ago, over 10 years ago. Um, when I was in California, this point made. But I want you to think of this. God is jealous for his people. And so on the one hand, that means because he's jealous of them, he will not tolerate their faithlessness. He will not tolerate their idolatry. You've got extended metaphors where God says to Israel, you're like a whoring, adulterous wife, O house of Israel. Because God is jealous, be afraid. But here, the other side of that jealousy shows up. You're mine. And how dare these other nations mistreat you? How dare the other nations crush you and, and persecute you? And you get the jealousy of God protecting us. And God is jealous for you. And, and that jealousy, he's jealous for me, it should cause that same thing. On the one hand, I better watch out and not fool around with God because he's jealous. On the other hand, he will guard and protect and safeguard us because he is jealous for his people. He says he's jealous and he's angry at the nations. And the reason he's angry at the nations is, um, I'm angry at the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Now, you might initially say he's just angry a little. Up, up in chapter 1, verse 2, he says he was very angry with your fathers. What, what gives? Was he angry a little or was he very angry? He was very angry for a little time. That's where this goes. The angel of the Lord is going to pray about the 70 years. The Lord was very angry with Israel, but it was a brief anger in time. The judgment was not final, but only 70 years. And what happened is these nations that the Lord raised up, he says, they went further than they needed to go. They, they went beyond what was needed, and he is angry at them for that. That's the first word. Now, the rest of this prophecy, the rest of this vision isn't going to deal with God's anger at the nations. Next week, we're going to look at that. In fact, this opening salvo, this opening um, word that God gives to, to Zechariah sets up a lot of what comes in the following visions. We're going to read about the, the raising up and the falling of the nations around them in the second vision at the end of chapter 1. And then chapter 2 is going to deal with a measuring line that's referenced here in the second part. Because the second Thing that Zechariah is to cry out in verse 16 is that the Lord has returned to Jerusalem with mercy. The Lord has returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Let's look at verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So he's returned he will have mercy. And, and the specific demonstration of God's return, how will you know the Lord has returned? He's having mercy. Well, because the temple will be built. And the, the measuring line shall go out. The measuring line picturing the beginning, the, the measuring of laying the walls and the foundation and, and assuming the completion. 
assuming the completion. His house will be built. The measuring line shall go out. And that gets picked up in chapter 2. Because remember, that's what the people are meant to do. And they're discouraged. They're a small group. The temple that they're building is, is rinky-dink compared to Solomon's. And yet they've already been promised by Haggai that the glory of the temple that they're working on will exceed the glory of Solomon's temple. So the Lord has returned. And, and that's got to be good news to this remnant. You've come back. I just want to picture what type of good news this is. Only 50,000 Israelites return. Most of Israel has, has, has been co-opted into the pagan culture. They're, they're happy as clams. They stayed behind. 50,000 come. And they begin the hard work of building this temple and building the walls. And it's discouraging. And, and the Samaritans raise up and they mock them and they give up. And God comes and he calls them to repent. Hey guys, you shouldn't have quit. But he does recognize their faint-heartedness. He does recognize their discouragement. And he says, I, I've returned. Yes, you did not see the Shekinah glory visibly show up, but make no mistake, I have returned. I am with you. I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And that's really the tenor of this. The, the whole book is, is Israel. Now that you've returned to me, I am going to do great things. I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to hold you up, build you up. I'm going to strike down your enemies who oppress you. And we're going to see that in, in the rest of the book. And the third thing that he used to cry out in verse 17 is this. Verse 17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall overflow with prosperity and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And now we're moving beyond simply the temple will be built, the walls will be rebuilt. Beyond that, now we're looking at the people living in the walls and commercing in the, in the temple. There will be prosperity and there will be comfort. My cities shall overflow with prosperity. This is, these are lavish terms of blessing, not little blessings, big overflowing blessings, prosperity, and comfort from God. And while we could argue that the first two, and then the blanks here, the, the third one, the, the Lord will again prosper and choose Zion. The Lord will again prosper and choose Zion. Well, we could argue that, that the first two things that Zechariah prophesied, cried out, have been fulfilled, that, that the Lord is jealous and angry. He's jealous for Israel. He's angry at the nations. We could argue, okay, well, that, that's been fulfilled. He's punished Babylon. He's punished um, Persia. And the second, that the Lord has returned. The house will be built. The, the the measuring line shall go forth. We can say, okay, that, that's been accomplished. This third announcement has not. This, this third announcement, verse 17, is yet future. There's no, way it, there's no way this has literally happened. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity. Understand that, that from the captivity in Babylon, Israel, up until 50, 60 years ago, Israel has either not existed or been under Gentile rule. Whether it's the Romans, whether it's the Babylonians, whether it's the Medo-Persians, only in the 1940s did Israel again become a nation-state independent. And even then, since the 1940s, it's been oppressed, hedged in, pressed in by enemies around, not in unprecedented prosperity. And we're going to read some other promises about what God's going to do for Jerusalem and for Israel later in this book. There's just no way this has happened yet. It, it has not happened yet. There's no honest dealings with the text that can argue this has occurred. It hasn't. And so some of what Zechariah prophesies, it has a near fulfillment. And at the very least, verse 17 is looking out to the long view. Remember, Zechariah is not only to deal with Israel's immediate state, but the, the final state, the end times. We looked at that last week. Cry out again, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So that, that's... that's his message. So to summarize again, the, the vision itself, we got the players, the man on the horse, the angel of the Lord who is pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. You got the, this horseman patrol 
having a covert meeting of intelligence gathering and the interpreting angel standing by his side. And then the drama unfolds as the, the report given by the horsemen is that the, the, the nations are at peace, at ease, which provokes the angel of the Lord because he's jealous for Israel. Because the angel of the Lord has the same heart for Israel that the living God does. And he cries out to the Lord, how long will you be angry and not have mercy? The Lord responds, I've returned. I've returned. And then he gives that prompts the commissioning of Zechariah. Because of that, because of what you've just seen, Zechariah, here's what I want you to go tell everybody. Here's what you need to announce and proclaim. God's jealous for Jerusalem. He's angry at the nations. He's returned with mercy, and he will again prosper and choose them. Which then leads us to the application. What, what do we make of all this? We're not Israel, are we? You know, we're not living in Jerusalem. We're not working on building a temple. So whatever application we get from this is going to be indirect. God's message to us isn't that we go start doing a building project in the backyard. Um, but there is plenty of truth and meat for us here. So let's look at this. Just four points I want to make with our remaining 15 or 20 minutes. The first should be obvious, but needs to be restated. The Lord loves, comforts, and defends his people. The Lord loves, comforts, and defends his people. He does. This whole book is a book of, of comfort, a book of encouragement. God gets that his people are discouraged. They're not rebuked for being discouraged. They're rebuked for being unfaithful. Frequently our discouragement and our sorrow and our depression will lead us to disobedience, lead us either to not do the good we should do or to do something we shouldn't do, but they're not directly corrected or criticized for being discouraged. They're in a discouraging setting. And so God wants to give them comfort. You know, God oftentimes glorifies himself and, and, and reveals himself to us in our discouragement. You know, we, we live in a country where the prosperity gospel itself may not be super um, popular and or dangerous here, but what, what a friend of mine and I sometimes refer to as the prosperity gospel light can be. And we've talked about this in previous weeks, but the prosperity gospel light doesn't promise you riches and endless health, but it does promise you a pretty easy life. The prosperity gospel light says, if you're a good little boy or girl, you're a good little Christian, then life's going to be pretty easy. There aren't going to be big trials. There's not going to be cancer. There's not going to be losing your job. That's what the prosperity gospel light says. And yeah, there'll be little bumps, there'll be little ups and downs, but you'll have a pretty smooth life of it. That's not what the Bible predicts. And here God's people are, are in a, a sorry state and he's giving them comfort and he's not rebuking their sorrow. Notice that. Sometimes we, we miss the comfort of God because we're trying to pretend everything's just fine. And again, we can buy into this notion that to acknowledge that we're wrestling, to acknowledge that we're struggling, to acknowledge that we're discouraged is somehow faithlessness, is somehow letting the team down. I want to read an extended quote from John Calvin on this point. John Calvin in his Institutes speaks of, and there's nothing new under the sun. Um, in his day, it was the Stoics. The Stoics, Stoicism is that notion of the stiff upper lip. You just sort of suck it up and deal with it. He says, now among the Christians, there are also new Stoics who count it depraved, not only to groan and weep, but also to be sad and care-ridden. So these Stoics say if a Christian is weeping or groaning or full of cares, that's sinful. You ever heard anything like that? That if, if you're discouraged, if you're weeping, if you're sad, if you're groaning, that there's something wrong with you? This is what Calvin has to say. Yet we have nothing to do with this iron philosophy which our Lord and Master has condemned not only by his words but also by his example. So according to Calvin, Jesus Christ condemned such thinking by his words and by his example. For he groaned and wept both over his own and others' misfortunes. He, he groaned and wept over his impending suffering and over the suffering of Lazarus and his family. And he taught his disciples in the same way. The world, he says, will rejoice, but you will be sorrowful and weep. And that no one might turn it into a vice. 
what he means is sorrow. So that no one might possibly say that sorrow is vice. He openly proclaimed, blessed are those who mourn. No wonder, for if all weeping is condemned, what shall we judge concerning the Lord himself, from whose body tears of blood trickled down? If all fear is branded as unbelief, how shall we account for the dread with which we read he was heavenly stricken? If all sadness displeases us, how will it please us that he confesses that his soul is sorrowful even unto death? Now, the Bible is real about suffering. The Bible is real about struggles. And this is a book of encouragement. They're not rebuked for their, for their sorrow. They're not rebuked for their groaning. They are rebuked for the disobedience and lack of faithfulness that that can yield. Sometimes sorrow, depression, discouragement can lead us to give up, can lead us to fail, to do as we ought. But in and of itself, we've, we've gone through enough of the Psalms to recognize that it is no spiritual virtue to pretend that everything's wonderful when inwardly your heart is groaning. And the Lord loves, comforts, and defends his people. We can be honest with our discouragement because we got a God who wants to comfort us. we got a God who wants to fight for us. Secondly, the Lord has unfinished plans, has an unfinished plan for Jerusalem. Now, there'll be a lot more of this later in this book, so we're just going to make the point now. But God is not done with Israel. God is not done with Jerusalem. There are promises made even more explicitly later in this book that clearly have not occurred yet. Plans for a deliverance. I mean, just, just jump to oh, chapter 12, just for one of the clearest ones. I love this passage because it speaks about the future um, conversion of Israel, where they receive their Messiah, where Israel becomes Christian. But it's the, the action's all centered around Jerusalem. Um, this is one of the two burdens that make up the last section of the book. But chapter 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus says the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and forged the spirit of man within him. Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples, and all who lift it will surely hurt themselves. And all the nations of the earth will gather against it on that day, declares the Lord. And then, so, so this is clearly dealing with the nation of Israel, the geographic city of Jerusalem. And yet in that context, look at verse 10. This just, I just get chills every time I read this. Not only because it speaks of their future conversion, but because hundreds of years before the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was predicted. Verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Ramon in the plains of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the house of, Jerus the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house, and so on. God's not done with Israel. He's not done with Jerusalem. And I, and I only stress that point because there is a very, very prevalent um, understanding amongst otherwise godly, solid Christians, men who I would consider brothers and, and I've learned from, that somehow think that the church is Israel, We've become Israel. And so all this stuff in Zechariah really is being fulfilled in us. And I hope you'll see as we read through Zechariah, there's just no honest way of dealing with the passage that, that allows for that. It's too specific. The geographic notation is too clear. God's not done with Israel. Now, right now, Israel is unbelieving. Right now, Israel is apostate. So this does not lead us then to blind Zionism. Let me say what I mean is you can sort of get two poles on this. There, there are some Christians who in their zeal for God's not done with Israel, God has a plan for Israel, they sort of conclude Israel's always right, always back Israel. Well, that's wrong because Israel right now is, is apostate. They're, they've rejected their Messiah. We're not going to back them in that, I hope. 
So let me just say this clearly. An unbelieving Israel has no divine claim to the, to the land of Palestine. An unbelieving, an unfaithful, a covenantally unfaithful Israel should expect only what from the law? Cursings, right? I, my reading of the news frequently leads me to think that Israel frequently has a just claim, a just defense. It frequently appears as though their wrong is being done against them. But we need to take it case by case. We need to be willing to consider that Israel could be the perpetrator of violence and injustice. We're not blindly backing them. What we are saying is there will come a day in the future where the Lord will take the blinders off. Israel will get it. They will be faithful. And then they will experience the blessings of the covenant. Then they will have a divine claim on that land. And so until then, we cautiously watch and pray and wait. Um, but God has unfinished plans for Jerusalem. Point C. Jesus Christ is an intercessor for his people. Jesus Christ is an intercessor for his people. I find this remarkable. You know, we, we think of the ways that Jesus saves his people and he comes and he dies on the cross, right? But there's another way in which the Bible speaks of Jesus saving his people and that is he's ever living to intercede on their behalf. Hebrews 7, 24 to 25. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When we see a glimpse of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, what is he doing? He's interceding on behalf of his people to the Father. Isn't that wonderful? Here is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and what is he consumed with? Passion for the people that his Father has given to him. What is he doing? He's appealing to the Father on their behalf. Also notice, he's appealing according to Scripture. He quotes the 70 years, right? Look up again in verse 12. The angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these 70 years? Where do you get 70 from? Well, you got 70 from Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, where Jeremiah predicted the 70-year Babylonian captivity. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. These nations shall serve the, serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation and the land of the Chaldeans for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So, the pre-incarnate Christ is interceding for his people and the pre-incarnate Christ is interceding for his people according to scripture. Do you think praying according to scripture, praying scripture might not be a bad idea? If, if our great God and Savior petitions the Father based on his promises and his word, because what, what, what Jesus is saying is basically implicitly, Father, you promised, keep your word. It's been 70 years. So, how, how much longer? He's, he's appealing to God based on his promises. It's pretty bold. But the Father responds with words of comfort and blessing. You know, we can pray the same way. Appealing to God based on what he said in his word. God, your word says that you're compassionate and that you are slow to anger. Lord, I, be, be slow to anger with me. Restore me. Be, comfort me. I need comfort, Lord. And it says here, you comfort your people. And petition God. Follow the example of, of our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I just think it's great that, that the same Jesus who in John 17 in the garden prays for his disciples is here praying for his people. Praying for his people. And finally, and point D here, God is absolutely sovereign. God is absolutely sovereign. And man is fully responsible. Man is fully responsible. Now let, me, let me take both of these pieces. And it's important we get both of these pieces. There's plenty of Christians who've got a hold of one or the other of these two truths. And lots of, lots of damage can be done by only grabbing hold of half of this. But on the one hand, let's, let's look at how God is presented as absolutely sovereign in this passage. You know, at that day, Babylon and now Medo-Persia, they're a big deal. Big world empire. And yet here, in some dark night in Israel, is a small covert meeting between the 
commander of the Lord's army and some horsemen. And yet what is decided upon here, what is talked about here, is what's going to happen. A couple horses and and an angel on a red horse. And they and their counsel is going to decide the fate of world history. Because God is absolutely sovereign. And he taught Nebuchadnezzar that lesson. You can read Daniel chapter 4 after he went and ate grass. God is absolutely sovereign. And so Israel's to hear this. You may be a small, belittled people, but the God you serve is the absolute sovereign ruler of all people. And the way he says things will play out, that's the way they're going to play out. And when he raises someone up, they're raised up. And when he pushes someone down, they're pushed down. Because God is absolutely sovereign over human history. But man is responsible. God is angry at Babylon. He's angry at the people that did this. And what we're tempted to think is if God is really in control, if God really is in control of everything, then surely then that means that we're all robots and aren't responsible for what we do. And the Bible repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly puts both out. It's true. God is absolutely in control. He's absolutely sovereign. Nothing happens. Not a swallow falls to the ground apart from his will. And yet, we are responsible. And sometimes that disjunct, that tension that we can feel is is jarring. I I want you to turn to Jeremiah 51. And And the reason why I want to turn to Jeremiah 51 is because by virtue of the fact that the angel of the Lord references Jeremiah, Zechariah and his audience would be familiar with this passage. This is this, the, these two truths that God is absolutely, completely, totally in control and man is responsible are truths the Bible just blasts, both of those. And what we've got to do is understand it's not one or the other. I understand how we can be tempted to think it's one or the other. The Bible won't let us have that dichotomy. They're both true. And sometimes both truths are put together so jarringly you've got to conclude the whole point of the way it's said is to show us yeah, I'm God, this is the way I do things, deal with it. And this is one of those passages in Jeremiah 51. God, speaking of Babylon, raising them up, because Jeremiah's whole ministry is saying, hey, don't even fight, don't even fight back. The Lord has given you into the hands of Babylon. And God speaks of them in such absolute sovereign control terms like a carpenter would speak of a hammer in his hand. Verse 20, you are my hammer, Let me say that again. Babylon is God's tool in his hand. You are my hammer and weapon of war. With you, I break nations in pieces. With you, I destroy kingdoms. With you, I break in pieces the horse and his rider. With you, I break in pieces the chariot and the charioteer. With you, I'm starting to get the repetition here. With you, I break in pieces man and women. With you, I break in pieces the old man and the youth. With you, I break in pieces the young man and the young woman. With you, I break in pieces the shepherd and the flock. You're getting the idea that all the breaking and all the smashing, consequently all the damage and destruction that's going to occur by Babylon's invasion, God's doing that. He says, I'm doing that. With you, I do that. You're my tool in my hand. I'm doing it. It's emphatic. It's emphatic. Verse 23, with you, I break in pieces the shepherd and his flock. With you, I break in pieces the farmer and his team. With you, I break in pieces the governors and the commanders. Verse 24, I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea before your very eyes for all the evil that they have done in Zion, declares the Lord. What? Yep. You read the book of Habakkuk. Here's here's my 30-second summary of the entire book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk's got a complaint. God, Israel is being unfaithful. What gives? What are you going to do? God's response. I've noticed that, Habakkuk, and I've raised up a far more wicked nation, the Chaldeans, to judge them. Habakkuk's second response, Lord, far be it from you to to use a more wicked people to judge us. How does that work? God's second response. Oh, don't worry, Habakkuk. After Babylon, I use them to discipline Israel. I'll turn around and discipline them for daring to touch my people. (laughs) Habakkuk's third response, I put my hand over my mouth. That's, that's Habakkuk in 30 seconds. Read it. Read it. That's a, and, and here's the point. The Bible understands that from our perspective, we don't get how that works. 
And I'm not up here saying, if you just give me a chance to draw a diagram, I'll show you how all this works. What I'm saying is the Bible again and again and again and again emphatically makes the point God is sovereign. There's just no escaping that. And the Bible again and again and again and again makes the point men are really responsible. It is just of God to be angry at sin. It is just and right of him to be indignant. And again, let me, one other passage. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Turn to Acts 2. I want you to see this clear as day. Or again, the juxtaposition of these two truths is jarring. And I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Acts 2, Peter preaching to the crowd at Pentecost. In one verse, I want you to get this. Acts 2, 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's blaming them. He's assigning guilt. This is an indictment. And yet, in the very giving of the indictment, it totally happened according to God's plan and foreknowledge. And we're not expected to understand how that can all fit together. It, it, it just is so. Jesus was crucified according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge, and woe be the people who crucified him. And I'll agree. Sometimes these truths, these mysteries are deep, and I don't, yeah. That's what God says. That's the way it is. Turn to chapter 4 of Acts. Turn to chapter 4 of Acts. Here, the early church is getting together for a prayer meeting after Peter and John get released after they've been beaten for the testimony that they bear. Pick it up in verse 23. When they were released, they went with their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had done to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, by the way, they start, they're praying according to Scripture. They're quoting Psalm 2. Why do, the, why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed. Well, they're identifying this opposition to the gospel. They're, they're identifying this opposition to the message they're preaching as fulfilling Psalm 2. It's the evil world nations trying to put the kibosh down on the Lord and his anointed. It's doomed to failure. Verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The Bible is unashamedly bold in its declaration. This, will you grant me that the crucifixion of the sinless Son of God is the most evil and wicked act ever to occur in human history because God was absolutely sovereign over it. He planned it. He planned the most evil event in human history. And he's able to do it in such a way that the men who did it are still to blame. He's able to, through the mouth of Peter, condemn them. There's a mystery there. But passages like this where God says, I am angry at Babylon. I'm angry at the nations that are at ease. But, but Lord, you raised them up. You caused them to do this. You, for 20, 30 years, Jeremiah was telling us that you were going to do this. I am. Yes, I did it. And I'm angry at them. Not expecting we understand it, but we see it here in Zechariah 1. We serve a God who is sovereign, and yet he, in a mysterious way, exercises his sovereignty such that we still are responsible. We still make choices. We're not robots. And, and we are morally culpable. And really, the only response is to tremble and worship. It isn't to understand. It's simply to say, if that's, Lord, the way you say things work, then we will struggle and strive to believe it. Praise be the living God. So that's our application. The Lord loves and comforts and defends his people. The Lord has an unfinished plan for Jerusalem. 
Jesus Christ is and always has been an intercessor for his people. And God is absolutely sovereign and man is fully responsible. Next week we'll look at further detail, the judgment of the nations that have persecuted Israel. But for now, let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that is in it. And Lord, we just pray that you'd help us to receive it, to believe it. Lord, help us to be honest with our grief, honest with our strugglings and sorrows, and come to you for our comfort, come to you for our refreshment, come to you for our strength. Lord God, um, help us to trust you with the running of this world. And when we don't understand what's going on around us, when we don't understand why you would raise up one nation, why you would raise up a leader, why you wouldn't come to the aid of some people, that we would, on the one hand, just like our Lord, cry out to you, petition you, and yet, Lord, grant us that we would trust you, that you are in control, that you know what you're doing, and that you have a plan. Lord God, have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.